As a part of my sermon preparation this week, I went back in time and watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I was trying to remember that one scene right near the end of the movie where Indiana is closing in on finding the Holy Grail, which is hidden deep inside of a cave in the desert. Having survived the requisite number of poisonous snakes, fiery explosions, and goose-stepping Nazis to get there, he faces three more obstacles once inside, any one of which could kill him. He gets past the razor-sharp buzzsaw and the collapsing floor that he almost goes through, only to find himself teetering on the edge of this huge chasm that separates him from the inner sanctum where the Holy Grail is located. The chasm is too wide to leap across, even with the use of his trusty whip, and there's no way to get around it whatsoever. However, according to legend, there's an invisible bridge across the abyss. All he has to do is believe in it, step out into thin air, and his foot will land firmly on it. All he has to do is believe that it's there. So he closes his eyes and he he gently shifts his weight. As far as he can tell, this is going to be the last thing he ever does, but it's not. When his foot comes down, it stops in midair, supported by something solid underneath that he cannot see. He carefully takes one step, then another, and then finally races across the invisible bridge to retrieve the Holy Grail. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews assures us that faith or belief is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction or evidence of things not seen. I know it's a bit of a stretch from Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones to the letter of the Hebrews. However, I think that the imagery of this invisible bridge is an excellent example of what Abraham did today in the reading that you heard earlier from the book of Genesis chapter 15. He stepped out in faith, believing that God's unseen promise to him would eventually come to fruition. Much of the power of promise comes from its unique blending of things hoped for and its conviction of things that we cannot see. When you make a promise with a trustworthy partner or friend, that which is promised can give you a certain hope that you can live with and rely upon. Promises can also be shallow hollow, and even sometimes deceptive or deceitful. In the name of God, people make outrageous promises. Success, good fortune, wealth, power, friendships, a career, popularity. But these have little to do with the biblical concept of promise. When one places their trust in these things, ultimately, they will disappoint the one who's placed their trust in them. Can you hear shades of today's gospel, which I just read to you, where Jesus says, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, where where the treasure is in heaven and it does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth can destroy. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
Today's reading from Genesis ought to encourage us to reflect on God's promises and just what it means to live by them. But how can we continue to trust in the promises of God when life often seems to throw us a curve and give us so little to hope for in their fulfillment? Today, in the man Abraham, we are given a clue, an example of what stepping out in faith actually looks like what it's all about. But before we take a closer look at this passage from Genesis chapter 15, we will come to understand its meaning far better if we take a look back and see what had just happened in the life of Abraham prior to this, prior to Genesis 15. So in chapter 13, Abraham and Lot, that's his nephew, decide to go their separate ways. They parted company. God had blessed them with so many possessions, so many cattle and sheep and camels <laughs> that they could not live together because Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen were constantly quarreling and fighting with each other. So Lot chooses to move away. He moves his entire family, herds, hired servants and all, to Sodom. Abraham chose to live in the land of Canaan. As it turns out, Lot made a bad decision. In Genesis 13, 13, we read, Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against God. He was talking, of course, about Sodom and Gomorrah. And we all know what eventually happened there, don't we? Fire and brimstone was raining down from heaven and utterly incinerated. Then in chapter 14, the kings of Sodom found themselves on the losing side of a big battle. So what did they do? They captured Lot and his entire family and all of his herds and possessions, including all their food. And when Abram heard about this, he was incensed. And assembling his trained men, a rather small but elite force, 318 it tells us, he pursued them. Abraham as an army defeated the enemy and rescued Lot with his whole family, all of his goods, and all of the people surrounding him. Those foreign kings must have been absolutely furious with Abraham. And Abraham must have been wondering to himself just what the consequences for rescuing his nephew might look like once he confronts these evil sodomites. In an unusual act of charity, he refused to keep any of the spoils of war, which he was entitled to. And he allowed the people of Sodom to go back into their city. While wondering what terrible things might happen to him, God came to him with a promise, the promise of protection, which is precisely what he needed. And that is where our story picks up for today in Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, after all these things that you just heard about, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And God said to Abraham, Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Having just returned from a fierce battle, God's promise to be Abraham's shield 
had to be an incredibly encouraging word to him going forward wherever and whenever he might encounter danger from any of his threats any time in his lifetime thereafter. Just like Abraham, having God as our shield, we do not have to fear whatever the future may hold in store for us. God's promise to, to shield us is there for everyone who placed their trust and confidence in him. God also promised Abraham that his reward shall be very great. One translation says exceedingly great. Perhaps God was rewarding Abraham's obedience to his command to leave his homeland and journey into an unknown foreign country. Or perhaps it could have been Abraham and his refusal to take the spoils of war from the sinful kings of Sodom. The most likely answer is that God was rewarding him for both of these behaviors. What happens next is a rather vigorous, vigorous exchange between God and Abraham. It's a dialogue between the two of them that occurs within the medium of a vision. Abraham is the first one to speak, and here's what he says. O Lord, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He continues, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now, what's remarkable about Abraham's statement is that he's willing to question, yes, even challenge God at the very moment that God is about to reward him with a rather great, sizable reward. Abraham's question shows that his childless condition is at the very forefront of his mind. It's all he can think about. It also shows that he's comfortable enough in the presence of God to raise this rather pointed question. Abraham doesn't need any more land. He doesn't need any more sheep or cattle or camels. What he needs is an heir. Even before this, God had promised to make him a great nation. But how in the world was that going to happen when he didn't even have a son of his own? So you see, there's this great distance between God and what he's promising on the one hand and Abraham's reality on the other. But now it's God's turn to speak. And here's what he has to say. This man shall not be your heir. Eliezer, he's talking about. Your own son shall be your heir. Then God brought him outside and said, look up, look toward heaven, and number the stars if you can, if you're able to number them. So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. God reassured Abraham that he would indeed have a son who would become his heir. If God can create heaven and earth, the planets, the stars, the galaxies, and the vastness of the universe by simply speaking a word, let there be and there was, would it not be possible to give Abraham a son as well? 
In fact, God will give Abraham a son whose name will be Isaac. And beyond that, so many sons and so many daughters that he won't even be able to count them. God says to Abraham, begin counting the stars, Abraham, and then you'll be able to begin to understand and to fathom the immensity and the magnitude of my promise to you. Now, just as a little aside, and just for the fun of it, really, since I love astronomy, and it was one of my favorite courses in college, actually, let's put this counting of the stars into perspective. It's estimated that the universe has a radius of 46.5 billion light years. A light, light years travel at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. The next closest star to our sun is Alpha Centauri, and it is only 4.2 light years away. Now, since one light year equals 5.8 trillion miles, at the current maximum speed of modern space travel, which is 25,000 miles per hour, it would take, are you doing your calculations here, a mere 114,500 years to get there. And here's one other astounding fact. It's estimated that our galaxy alone, which is the Milky Way, there are over 100,000 million, did you hear that? 100,000 million stars. And there are over 100 billion other galaxies in the universe. Now, I don't know about you, but my, my finite mind cannot comprehend the immensity of that. Can yours? So when, when we hear God take Abraham outside and make him this promise, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to, so shall your descendants be. That's how many descendants God was promising him. Well, this dramatic exchange between God and Abraham ends with the solidification of Abraham's faith. Abraham believed, which means that he was willing to trust God so completely that he was certain that God's promise would be for him a reality. Abraham did not express his faith as a last-minute emergency measure but as an ongoing relationship with the one who would do for him what he said he would do. Nor did he attempt to drive a hard bargain with God, though he did question and challenge why God had not provided him with an heir. Of course, he was 99 years old at the time, and you can imagine he would think that. Nor did he turn away from God's promise to consider that other option, that Eliezer would be his heir. In other words, Abraham's faith was far more than a throwing up of the arms in the air and crying, Uncle, what are you going to do for me? Rather, it was a gift. It was as much a gift of God's promise to him as a land of his own, a nation of his own, filled with descendants, and eventually the blessing of his own son. You see, Abraham was this man of God who had a great vision, a vision large enough to begin numbering the stars in the heavens and calculating just how many descendants that would mean. Billions. 
All of which is why God reckoned Abraham's faith as righteousness. In the Old Testament, righteousness is something that is achieved by compliance with the Jewish law. However, prior to God's giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, there was no law for Abraham to observe except for the natural law. What that means is that God is reckoning Abraham as righteous even though there were not yet any standards by which Abraham's conduct and behavior could be judged as righteous. So God set a new standard and counted Abraham's faith, his faith as righteousness. Abraham's whole life flowed out of a faithful response to simply trust and believe in God's promises and God's initiatives. And just what are those promises? What are those promises? What are those initiatives? Well, for us, they're certainly far different than they were for Abraham. Different because we have been given the law, the Ten Commandments. Through the law, we come to realize our transgressions and our violations of that law and our desperate need to have those transgressions, we call them sins, removed, expunged. They need to be removed because our God is a just God who will not tolerate our breaking of His law. He sees our breaking of the law as a great offense. And yet despite that, As St. Paul says, God is faithful and just, and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He did that by sending His Son, His only Son, to take upon Himself, that is to take into His sinless body all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our offenses, all of our sins, all of our unrighteousness. In other words, our unrightness or our wrongness. He took all of that upon Himself and then nailed all of that foulness and uncleanness to the cross. His death on Calvary's cross became the one and the only sacrifice once offered that God our Heavenly Father would accept as the necessary substitutionary payment for our sins. I say substitutionary because we couldn't pay for it ourselves. The substitute was Jesus Christ for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. While we were yet sinners, St. Paul says, Christ died for us. Only faith in what God, through Jesus Christ, did for us enables us to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. Ultimately, it was Jesus who became the final fulfillment of God's promise of a son, which would bring righteousness to all of Abraham's offspring, all of his offspring who believed, that is, and would make us heirs of salvation. St. Paul says, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're heirs of salvation. As children of God, we Christians journey through life 
by faith. There's no other way. We journey through life by faith. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says it so beautifully. By faith, Abraham sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. For he looked forward to the city which has permanent foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as the unnumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Abraham lived by that promise and had the ability through his faith to see that heavenly country, here it is, from afar. It's God's intention to give us that permanent homeland, that heavenly country as well. Jesus' promise was this, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is our assurance. Yes, it's our guarantee of that promise. You see, God's promises are not obscure. The Bible is laced with them throughout. The problem is that in this world and in this culture in which we live, it doesn't put much stock in them, does it? If you're hunting for evidence of the truth in those promises, simply search the Scriptures. They're replete with stories that bear evidence to the fact that God does keep His promises. Read Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. That'll give you a good idea. And if you're still unsure of His promises, look to the saints throughout the ages. They're a testimony to the fact that God keeps His promises to His faithful people. Oh, and if you're still wanting more proof, chances are pretty good that you yourself are that proof, living proof. Think of the promises that God has kept in your life. To possess this kind of faith, the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen, it may very well mean that you will have to step out into the unknown, however gingerly, to discover that for yourself that the evidence of that faith in your life is indeed real. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, we can do this. We can step out in faith. We can do this because God has given us a living bridge to step out onto. And that bridge has a name. It's Jesus Christ. All we have to do is believe and trust that He is there. And then just like Abraham, or just like Indiana Jones, take that first step out into thin air and discover that the bridge is there. Amen.